two verses, Romans 12, 1 to 2, Paul says to the Romans, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. This passage in Romans is an important hinge point in this book. Um, it is, it is uh, at a juncture between the beginning of this of Romans chapters 1 through 11 and then what's going to follow. Chapters 1 through 11 are full of truth, theological truth. And then chapters 12 through 16 are full of wonderful practical applications of that truth. And so this verse, these two verses, are a hinge point that look back at what's been going on in 1 through 11 and look forward to what's going to come in 12 through 16. So it's a hinge point that connects glorious truth with living it out. And so in these two verses, we have an understanding of, of how these things connect together. Uh, so let's dig in. Uh, what is taught here in this passage, I think, can be summed up uh, that the in this uh, statement that the Christian life is about gospel-fueled transformation. The Christian life is about gospel-fueled transformation. And so we'll look at two things here. The reasons, uh, the reasons behind this and the recipe for it. So first, the reasons. Uh, let's just dig into the text. It says, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. Uh, um, Actually, the word therefore should be first in terms of the, the logic in the original sentence that Paul gave. Again, it's translated out of Greek into English. So the translators are trying to find the best way to say it in modern uh, American English here. Um, but the first word is therefore. So Paul says therefore, and that's a word that we use, right? Therefore, um, it's chilly out today. Therefore, I wore a sweater to church, right? So uh, the therefore connects what's going on with what I'm doing. Because it's cold out, therefore I wear a sweater. Paul's saying what I've said in chapters 1 through 11, therefore what I'm going to say to you now. And he says, therefore I appeal to you, brothers. I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God. This word appeal, he's, he's, uh, it's probably stronger in some ways. It's I exhort. I strongly encourage. Um, this is really important what I'm going to say. I urge you. Uh, in light of these things, what I've just said, I urge you, I appeal to you, I exhort you uh, to, to do the following. Um, the, the reference point that he's appealing to, the therefore, the, the background here is, is touched on in the next statement, by the mercies of God. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, he's speaking to his brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God. So the reference point here is, is the mercies of God. The, what's been going on, what he's been speaking about, what he wants to sum up in chapters 1 through 11 is this reality of the mercies of God. He wants them to respond. He's exhorting them uh, in light of the mercies of God to, to do certain things. Um, there's an unction. There's, there's, a, there's a sense of burden here. He wants them to, to get What's going on? He wants them to understand and he wants them to apply it. He doesn't want them just to have read chapters 1 through 11 and say, well, that's nice. That's kind of cool. 
he, he's calling them to some sort of response. And, and this makes sense because the content here is, is really uh, amazing. It's had an impact on Paul, obviously, and it's meant to have an impact on us as well. So he says, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. Um, and, and it goes on to say what? So we ought to, to, to take some time, because we haven't read chapters 1-11 through 11 this morning, to talk about the mercies of God. What are the mercies of God? What does that mean? And, and that's, that's going to be the fuel for the rest of the section, right? By the mercies of God. I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, or based on the mercies of God, because of the mercies of God, I appeal to you to do these things. And so the mercies of God are the fuel for what's coming next. So it would be really good for us to kind of tap into what is meant by the mercies of God. Now I won't go through all chapters, 1 through 11, but very quickly, uh, if, you, if you start reading in Romans, he starts out uh, talking about him not being ashamed of the gospel. He wants the gospel to be made known. He's not ashamed to tell people this, uh, the gospel, the good news of Jesus. He's not ashamed of this because there's a situation that it addresses. There's a problem. And by the way, every worldview addresses the origin of mankind, the problem with mankind, and the solution. Every worldview has those elements in them. And the Christian worldview addresses the origin of mankind and the problem. So that's what Paul's doing in Romans. He's addressing the problem. He's not ashamed of the gospel because it addresses this problem. What is the problem? The problem is that we have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's the problem. The problem with the universe is humankind. There, there are other problems related to this with the universe. Uh, but the truth is that we have fallen away from our original place of where we were created to walk in fellowship with God and to be His image on the earth, to, to reflect what He's like, to be like Him on the earth, to depend on Him and live in His grace and make Him known and, and love one another and, and use the earth to rule over it for good, to, to develop technology and science and literature all for the glory of God, all in community as His people, all in relationship. But we've fallen from that. Sin has entered in and we've fallen short of the glory of God. It's interesting if you go back and look at Paul's argument, um, he, he kind of puts his finger on it in such a way that it hurts if you read it. He doesn't let us get away with the tendency we all have to say the problem with the world is the sinfulness of men. Those men and those people and, and that organization and, and that situation, that's the problem with the earth and with humanity. And it, and it may be, but that's not where he's going in this argument in the beginning of Romans. He makes it clear that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That we've all fallen short. Every one of us. And those who think uh, they are okay, that they haven't fallen short, that they are righteous, they have. And, and, and if they're honest with themselves, they, ha they themselves have fallen short. Their own standards they've failed to, to measure up to. And, and so that's what's going on in, that, in the beginning is this problem that we've fallen short. Um, that we've fallen short of, of the, the standard. And it's personal. It's you. It's me. I have fallen short. I have sinned. Uh, G.K. Chesterton, the, the famous author and, and philosopher back in the late 1800s, early 1900s, 
Um, when asked by the London Times, uh, they had invited a number of prominent authors to write essays on what was wrong with the world. G.K. Chesterton's essay was simply this, Dear Sirs, I am sincerely yours, G.K. Chesterton. That's what Romans 1 to 3 is talking about. Uh, the, the problem with the universe, the problem with the world is me. And my brokenness and my failure to, to live in dependence on God, to love God with all of who I am, to love others as myself. That's, that's the problem. And it's no small matter because we've seen enough of God in His creation and we know enough about His goodness just in the, the things that are written on our hearts as those made in His image that we are guilty and without excuse. And the wages of sin is death. The wages of, of falling short, the wages of refusing to love God and one another in these right ways is to be cast out of the presence of God. To, to, to be put away from Him. To suffer just wrath from God for our sin. The wages of sin is death. That's the reality. That's what justice calls for. If someone violates a good law, they, they, they need to be addressed. They need to pay a penalty. There needs to be some fixing of that problem. And the, and the fixing of it is God to, to rightly and justly banish us from His presence. And if we live in that state, we'll live there forever. That's what hell is. To be apart from the goodness of God. To, to suffer the consequences of our sins. And, and so that's the situation that's going on here. That's the background here. No one is righteous. No, not one. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We are not righteous. We are not right. Things are not as they ought to be and we're under a sentence of death. That's the problem. That's the problem with us. That's the problem with humanity. That's the problem with me. That's the core problem. That we are alienated from God. We are cut off from Him. We are in rebellion against Him. And, and the right response would be for God to just let us go our own way and, and bring the consequences to bear that we deserve. But... God is merciful. God is loving. God is good. God is gracious. God is unlike anybody we've ever known. He loves to be gracious. He loves to be merciful. He loves to, to grant forgiveness. He loves to restore relationship. He is a peacemaking God. He pursues peace. When we were not pursuing it. The reality, the reality with uh, Romans and in Scripture is that if God had not intervened, we would have merrily gone about our way, running away from Him. Nobody seeks God, it says. Nobody. Even those that appear to seek God, in and of themselves, apart from God's intervention, they're, they're not. They're seeking something else. They're seeking to establish their own sense of holiness or worth before God or others. So God is the one who has pursued us in His great love and in His mercy. He's a God of mercy. And so the rest of Romans, as beyond chapter 3, middle of chapter 3, then following, is all about how God makes things right in this problem. And you know how He does it? He Himself becomes a human being. He Himself lives a, a life, a normal human life. Jesus was fully human. 
lot of the depictions of Jesus in the different movies, he just does. He seems so unhuman. Uh, there's a recent one that's come out. Uh, I think what it's called, The Chosen. What's the name of that one that came out? Very good job of just showing his humanity. He was human like you and me. He was normal in terms of his humanity, but he's God in the flesh. And he lived a righteous life. He fulfilled our righteousness. He, he did everything we all know we ought to do. And then he did something incredible. That beautiful, glorious life he offered up as a sacrifice on the cross, an atoning sacrifice for you and for me. That through faith in him, not in yourself, not in systems or other people, but him alone, through faith in Him and what He's done, you could be forgiven. He bore our sins on the cross, paid for them, and He offered up His righteous life in our stead as an offering to the Lord. And so through faith in Him, our sins are forgiven and we are counted as if we had lived that perfect life, that righteous life. He makes things right for us. And then there's all sorts of implications of that. Because his death and his resurrection um, answered, addressed this problem of sin and brokenness. And he was raised from the, the dead on the third day as the conqueror of sin and death. And he's ascended into heaven. He's reigning right now to finish the job through his church. That the good news would go to all peoples. That all peoples would understand this solution and live out its implications. And be a transformed people on the earth among all people. To shine and to show what life in Jesus looks like. What this solution looks like. And when that work is done, He'll return and He'll vanquish all evil. and There'll be a new creation. That's the mercies of God. That's what He's done for us through Christ. And there's all lots of things that come with it. You have to read the rest of Romans to see all the other things. And we recognize it's fully of God's grace and mercy. He's the actor. He's the one who comes to rescue, not us. And that's, that's what Paul's talking about. Therefore, Paul says, present your bodies as living sacrifices. In light of these mercies, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. We are to present our bodies. We're, we're to kind of say in response to this, Lord, here I am. Here's my body. And the, and the language here, presenting our bodies and sacrifice, holy and acceptable, spiritual worship. All those words uh, are, are the language of, of temple worship. The, the language of, of being before the Lord and putting yourself on the altar. That's the idea here. So Paul is saying, I appeal to you brothers, because of the mercies of God, present your bodies at every moment of your life, at every point in your day. When you wake up, as you go through the day, as you're considering what to do with your free time, as you're faced with that difficulty at work, as that difficult relationship and conflict is once again in your face, as you have leisure time, as you're with friends just having fun, at all these moments and everything you do, present your bodies in light of the mercies of God as a living sacrifice to say, Lord, here I am right now. In this moment, I need you. You've given me everything in Jesus. I want to love you. I want to love others. I want to maximize this time for you. That's the idea here. This isn't just theory. This isn't just like, well, that's nice. The gospel changes us and now I feel good or whatever. No, this is practical. 
It's everything we do. And that's what Paul's going to start to do after this is talk about the, these practicalities. And the whole Bible speaks to every situation in our lives. Every attitude. Every context. Every occupation. Every aspect of being human. It answers fully the question, what does it mean to be human and how should I live? And what Paul's saying here is, at the core of this, is this attitude for the, those in Christ. To say, here I am, Lord. To present our bodies. Interesting that he says bodies. You might think, given some of our tendencies and perspectives, that he would say, present your heart to the Lord. Or you might think, you know, present your mind to the Lord. Or you might think, present your soul to the Lord. But it says, present your bodies. That's your bodies. Your physical bodies to the Lord. Everything about us in our bodies is to be presented to the Lord. He's the one who made us. We are, we are bodies. You, to answer the question, who are you? You are your body. And you are your soul. And these things are together in a union that is the image of God. And so the Bible never diminishes the body. Now, Greek thought and a lot of medieval thought and a lot of current modern thought diminishes the body. It's all about the mind and the soul. But it says here, present your bodies. All that you do, all that you are, present to the Lord as a living sacrifice. It's a living sacrifice. It's lived out. Holy and acceptable to God. In Jesus, through faith in Him, you are forgiven. And your sacrifice is counted as holy and acceptable. Or the word uh, is well-pleasing. More literally, well-pleasing. Pleasing to God. That's the wonderful thing here too, is that, that through Christ, through the mercies of God, our sins are covered, we're counted righteous, and the Lord is working in us. There's, there's a new nature in us. There's good actually working in us. There's true righteousness in the believer acting out. And as the Lord looks at your life at those moments, and it might be a moment where you're saying, Lord, I'm at the end of my rope today. I can't deal with this, but I need you. Help me. Help me to love you. Help me to depend on you. Help me to love others. That's a pleasing sacrifice to God. He is pleased. He's, there's joy in His heart as He sees you do that and as you depend on Him. Or if it's doing some of the things that Toby talked about as our, our uh, brothers and sisters have served. That's a pleasing sacrifice as, as you are up here singing or leading children's ministry or youth or doing tech stuff. It's just... Oh, so helpful. It pleases God. That's what's going on here. That's what Paul's getting at. It's a pleasing sacrifice. And then he goes on to say, which is your spiritual worship? It says in the ESV. Uh, if you have a different Bible besides an ESV, you may notice a different phrase there. Um, in other places, uh, I think the New King James says, reasonable service. Um, and it's because the word that's there is is combines the idea of service and worship. Um, and the idea actually is, is a worshipful service, is kind of what the word means. It's the sort of stuff that, that comes with devotion. It's how you serve in, in worship. And it's, uh, the word spiritual or reasonable is, it means both that. It's, it's, a, it, it, it's kind of the idea of, of something. It, it is the right response. It makes sense. When you're a spiritual person, you get it and you, you do this. So, so it's spiritual, reasonable worship service in your life. That's what he's saying. This is your spiritual worship, your reasonable service 
This is what makes sense to do. And so it's kind of re-emphasizing the same thing. I urge you by the mercies of God to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, which is your reasonable worship. Because if you get the mercies of God, worship with your life and your body and offering it every day and at every moment makes sense. That's what he's saying. So this is a, a picture of the Christian life. And it's fueled. The fuel here, don't miss this point. The fuel here is the mercies of God. If you want fuel for your Christian life, remember the mercies of God. Think about the mercies of God. Grow in the, your understanding of the mercies of God. I love in, uh, in Les Miserables, Victor Hugo's famous novel and musical and so forth play, um, Jean Valjean, the character Jean Valjean demonstrates this so well. Um, John L. John grows up in poverty to survive. He steals a loaf of bread. He gets caught. He gets sent to prison. He tries to escape. They send him to more prison. Uh, and he, after, I think, 20 years, he's finally released. He's a bitter man. He's a broken man. And they uh, make him carry a note saying that he's a, a dangerous criminal. And the public shuns him. And in bitterness and desperation, he turns again to, to theft and he uh, ends up stealing the silver of a bishop. And he gets caught. And they bring him back to the bishop's house. And they're going to throw him in jail again for another 20 years. And the bishop says to the, the police, No, 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 this was a gift. I gave them to, to him. And matter of fact, John, you forgot the candlesticks. And he takes his candlesticks and gives the candlesticks to Jean Valjean. That moment of mercy in the story transforms the man. Because he hadn't been receiving mercy. He had been receiving harshness and justice. But when this bishop is merciful to him and he gets it, he decides, you know, I'm going to live differently now. And in the story, he goes on to become an entrepreneur, starts a factory, uh, saves a town from economic ruin, becomes mayor, and gives his life for caring for Cosette, the orphan of, of uh, Fantine who had been forced to prostitution. He's a picture of this verse. And I love the story, but the true story is even better. Because it isn't a bishop. It's God Himself who gave Himself for you. When you had stolen from Him, He gave Himself for you. His very Son for you. Because He loves you and He wants you to know Him and live in Him and live in this new life, not the old life. And so Paul can say, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God. Because of the mercies of God, live a new life. And now in verse 2, he's going to explain what that new life looks like. The recipe for it. And by the way, I, uh, having to cut things short a little bit that I would just encourage you a little pause is to find ways to renew yourself in your understanding of the mercies of God don't just listen to a message and try to remember it develop habits of remembering so get up every day and maybe read the word of God pray take time at the end of the day to give him thanks and by the way um, take advantage of the many good resources that are out there. I, I just brought a few up with me. 
Um, I was going to pray a prayer from the Book of Common Prayer. There's a wonderful prayer in here on Thanksgiving. Just a way to give thanks and remember His mercy. The Gospel Primer, great way to just go through and, and re remind yourself of the mercies of God. Um, another thing to do, grab a hymnal and sing a hymn. But, but develop habits. So don't just leave it in the concept stage. Develop life habits. Just take five minutes at the beginning and the end of the day to thank God for His mercies, to remember these things. And, and that will fuel you. And it will bring it from mere understanding, mere information, to transformation. Next, the recipe. The verse goes on to teach us about how to live this out. And he says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Paul is filling out in the second verse what that living sacrifice looks like, how we do it, what, what is the nitty-gritty here. And, and at the core is this idea, do not be conformed to this world, literally this age. There are two ages in Scripture. The current age, it's, the current age is this age where humanity has fallen. It's where the, the impact of our broken relationship with God changes us and changes our cultures. And, and though God is at work, He's still in control. The devil does not reign over this world. God reigns over this world. And certainly the devil is allowed sway. But he has his sway through people and systems and cultures that don't submit to the Word of God. And so we live in this world full of the grace of God. He's at work and He's over it. But there's this brokenness in everybody and in every culture. And that's this age. That's what this age is like. This broken age. There's an age to come. And the reality is for us as believers actually, we span both ages. The reality is that for us, we have uh, two natures in us. We have the old nature uh, descended from Adam and Eve our brokenness, uh, this sinfulness, this orientation uh, of rebellion away from God. We want to develop life and live out systems and philosophies and cultures and ways and habits that are, that are anti-God ultimately. That's in us. But if you are a believer in Jesus, something miraculous happened at the moment that you believed. You were given a new nature. You are a new creation, it says. The old is gone, the new has come. You have, a, you have a new nature, Jesus Himself. Not the nature of Adam, but the nature of Jesus, the resurrected Son of God, is in you. And there's a love for the Lord, and there's faith, and there's ability to understand and discern. God Himself, the Spirit, lives in you. And so these two natures are at war with each other. If you're a believer, I can tell you who wins. Jesus wins. But there's, there, there are aspects of this that we have to walk this out it's we live in the already not yet we already have this new nature it's going to happen but we're not yet there we're not perfected until we go to be with jesus we won't be and so we must learn how to not be conformed to this age but be transformed to live in light of our true nature it's our true identity that old nature has been crucified on the cross with jesus it's dead and we have to realize that and live in it it still dwells in us and there's a battle there but we are new creations. And so Paul talks about here the fact of how we walk it out. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Don't be conformed to this world. Don't follow the pattern. Recognize the pattern that's around you. And don't fall into it. Don't fall into this pattern. 
we need to we need to just recognize it and not be conformed but be transformed. So there are actually countless examples I could give you, but let me just give you uh, one, uh, two examples that come to mind as as we look at the culture around us uh, and identify what's going on and learn not to be conformed but be transformed into the ways of God. Uh, the the idea of image, the image of humanity. What is what is it like? What is what is how do we project our image? What is humanity? What do we see out there in the culture? And again, uh, there's good things in the culture. But how are people portrayed in the media? All sorts of ways, right? But, but the people that are kind of the icons, what do they look like? Think of the news. Think of the weather. You watch people in the news. You watch people in the weather. What, what do those people always look like pretty much on the, on the television? They all look really good. It's like models, right? It's amazing. The meteorologists used to be the, the geeky guys. Now it's these attractive young, young women who are great meteorologists. But, but I don't think you can get a job anymore as a meteorologist on TV unless you're like model level physical beauty. Great teeth. Everything, right? Looks great. And they're amazingly articulate, aren't they? And if you are watching and they, they, they like make one little error in their articulation, you're like, oh, that's not how you say that, right? I do that. We have this standard now of, of you know, what they need to do. And we do that for all public figures. They're all expected to do that. And we reproduce the same mindset ourselves on things like Instagram. Nobody posts a picture on Instagram of themselves like with bedhead, right? You know, just rolled out of bed. They don't do it. It's always the most beautiful pictures of the day. The most beautiful poses. And so we project this image of humanity that's actually a false image. Now, don't get me wrong. Beauty is a good thing. But what, is, what does it mean to be human? Does it mean that we're picture perfect? No. It means that we're limited. Even, even if there was no sin in the world, we would not all look like the, a perfect 10 model. We wouldn't. There's variation, there's differences, those are all God-given. There's weaknesses, there's imperfections. Nobody speaks like they do on the news. Nobody is articulate like that. Nobody. Now it's helpful to be as articulate as you can be. I strive for that as I preach, but you hear me, I'm not perfect. I hope you're not like, oh, oh said the wrong word that time. Um, you know, it's just not reality. So that's a pattern of this age that we start to perceive humanity as being beautiful and perfect. And, and, and even beauty. What's beauty? Is the beauty merely physical? There's so much more to beauty. There's character. There's how you connect to your community. How you impact others. When God looks at us and he judges beauty, he doesn't just say, you know, perfect distance between the eyes, right right-sized nose, really nice hair. He doesn't. I mean, that stuff is good in and of itself, but it's not the whole picture. And so the pattern of this age is to project a false understanding of humanity. Well, I don't think it's intentional, by the way. But that's what's going on. And we have to recognize that and not be conformed to it and think, that's what I need to be. But instead, be informed by the Bible, be transformed, and understand that actually glorying in my weakness is part of my humanity being dependent on the Father and being comfortable with the fact that I'm not perfect, that I need others, that together we're better versus me standing alone looking picture perfect. 
There's all sorts of things we can do with that. But I, does that make sense? And I hope that's practical, how, how we even think about that. I'm not saying stop watching the news because it's not quite right, but recognize it and don't be conformed. Rather, be transformed. Another one real quick, sorry. Uh, I could do this all day. Um, part why I'm writing a book. Uh, happiness. How do you find happiness? That's what um, being American is all about, right? At the core, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That's, that's at the core, and it, and it means more than just fleeting happiness, I think. But how do you get happy? How do you find happiness? What does the culture say? Fulfillment, right? Self-actualization. Find what you're meant for. Be yourself. Find your fulfillment and, 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 and make your own choices. Determine who you're going to be and be happy to be that. Make yourself emotionally happy. That's happiness. But that's not what the scripture teaches. Now the scripture addresses things like joy and, ind and individuality. But God made us in his image. God is not an individual pursuing his individual happiness. He's three persons in one. And in that relationship of mutual love and co-service together is a picture of what we're supposed to look like. And so we don't find our life in individual self-determination and fulfillment. We find it in community and giving ourselves to others, actually. That's where happiness is found. And if you pursue your happiness on your own, your own self-pleasure, your own sense of pleasure, apart from giving yourself, you will not be happy. Jesus says, and there's lots of scriptures on this, Jesus says, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. So Jesus says, if you want life, lose your life. Sacrifice yourself. Serve others. Happiness is found by sacrificing yourself and finding your happiness in others' prosperity. That's hugely important. That's biblical. And if you are struggling with unhappiness, deep unhappiness, I encourage you to not be conformed to this age, but be transformed in these things, to follow God's way of doing things. Time is going too fast. Um, so, not being conformed, being transformed. That, world, that word transformed is a powerful word. It's only used a few other places. It's used for when Jesus was transfigured before them. It's the same word. It's used in 2 Corinthians 3.18 where we are transformed into the same image from one degree, degree of glory to another when we behold the Lord. It's radical change. Radical change. Think the resurrected Jesus in His glory. That's the goal for us. We are all being made into the image of Jesus. We will be radically transformed in the fullness of it. We will be glorified and, and we will be incredible to behold as we look like Jesus in His glory. That's, that's what's going on here. So be transformed. But it's interesting how it, it says, it says through the renewing of your mind. 
it's interesting, it's through the renewing of your mind. This happens, this transformation happens through the renewing of your mind. It, it's important to understand that. And what Paul is saying here is not that you need to be smarter. It's not that you need to be more informed. You're really, the word means your mindset, your perspective, your orientation. The word for mind there is the same word that's used in the word for repent. When it, the scripture says repent, it means change your mindset, change your orientation. So repent is changed mindset. That's what is said in that word. So this word means your mindset, your orientation, not just your intellectual understanding. That's part of it, but not the whole thing. So we need to be renewed in our minds. We need to have our mindset altered. And, and that by testing, it, it says that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. So there's a renewal of our minds that goes on that results in testing and discerning the will of God. And, and in that, understanding that the will of God is good, acceptable, and perfect. So there's a transformation in our thinking that we become to understand and orient ourselves in our whole lives, body and soul, mind and heart, emotions, all of us, around God's will in a way that we see that it is good and acceptable. That's a word again. Uh, Well-pleasing, good, pleasing, and perfect. So this is how it works. Our minds are transformed. We start to see things differently. We start to see the will of God for what it is, and we start to agree, yes, this is good, pleasing, and perfect. As the Word of God, as the truths of Scripture, as the, as the relationship with our church, and our worship, and in our friendship, and on mission together, as we're immersed in these things, and we test them out, and we take steps of faith and obedience, and we develop habits, we begin to see, yes, this is good, and this is pleasing, and this is perfect. That's how it happens. We have to change our mind and we have to walk it out together and start to see this good, pleasing, and perfect will. And let me say to you that everything you do is motivated by what you think is good, pleasing, and perfect. Everything you do, every choice you make, every moment of your life, you are doing this already. It's just, are you right? is what you think is good, pleasing, and perfect, really what is most good, most pleasing, and most perfect? Or have you settled for something less, or settled for some sort of distortion in that? All of life is that. So all of our choices, every human being, as those made in the image of God, is always pursuing what they understand to be best, and most pleasing, and most perfect. And perfect is the word complete. It's like the fullness, robust, and true, and it makes sense, and it works. That's the idea there. Good, pleasing, and perfect. So you do it all the time. Let me give you an example. It's Sunday afternoon. You are um, watching the Patriots beat the odds once again with their new quarterback. Um, and it's, it's halftime. And you go into the kitchen. And there on the counter are a, uh, are a dozen big, juicy, freshly baked brownies. And you at that point are aware of two things. How good those chocolatey, chewy, 
brownies look and tastes and that you're trying to lose 20 pounds. You're trying to lose 20 pounds because it's better for your health. You'll feel better, you'll look better, you'll be better. You know you need to do it. But those chocolate brownies look so good, pleasing and perfect at that point in time. And 20 pounds is going to take me two months, but I can right now eat the brownie. And so what do you do? Who here eats the brownie? Most of us, right? And so you go back and you have your chocolate heaven while you watch the game. It's good, pleasing, and perfect. How do you change? How do you stop eating the brownie? You have to start realizing that the other choice is a better good. It's more pleasing and more perfect. That's how you change. And so you have to change your mindset. Maybe you need to read about, you know, uh, clogged arteries or something. Or, you know, maybe you need to read about, you know, longevity being tied to your weight. Or maybe you just need to think more about your family and how you want to be around for them. There's all sorts of things that to start to, to start to change your mind. And then you need to develop some habits. I don't go into the kitchen at halftime until I lose the weight. Or... I have my spouse help me keep accountable, or, or I pray when I see the chewy brownies. Oh, Lord, they look so good. Help me. I know I'm supposed to stay away from these. And, and it's okay to have maybe one brownie, but the problem is, is when you have the brownies at every time, every time you have that choice, you make the brownie choice. There's a problem. Now, that's somewhat, well, that's a real one, actually. That's a real one for me. Um, but that's, that's the same idea goes on everywhere. And so whether it's brownies or if it's something that's bad for us, drugs, alcohol, illicit sex, it's the same idea. What is truly good, pleasing, and perfect here? What do I believe? And how can I transform how I think about it? That's what's going on in Romans 12, 1 to 2. I had lots of other things I wanted to say, but we're out of time. This applies to everything. It applies to marriage, family, your job. It applies to your choice of music. It applies to what's on your Spotify playlist. It applies to how you use Instagram. It applies to how you feel when you get up in the morning and what you do about it. It applies to the clothes you wear. It applies to everything. And, and, and don't misunderstand me in this. I'm not advocating a traditionalist view to an approach to these things. I'm advocating a biblical view where we understand this age and we understand what the Bible says and how good and pleasing and perfect it is. And that we do these things because it's so much better than all the other choices. And we do these things because the mercies of God fuel our hearts. I'm forgiven. I'm a new creation. I'm loved. I'm called to this destiny that's secured for me in Jesus. I'm fueled by the mercies of God. Therefore, at every moment, I offer up my life. Lord, it's, I'm yours. Help me to no longer be conformed, but transformed. To love like you do. And to glorify your worthy name. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this reality that's true for all of us. 
and any of us who come to Jesus. I pray you inspire our hearts to eagerly and always offer up our bodies as a living sacrifice to be transformed more and more and step by step as we're fueled by the wondrous mercies, your mercies. And now, Lord, as we transition to communion and the rest of our time, use these elements and our whole time today to, to strengthen us in these things. That we will know and live out the answer to the question, how should we live? We thank you and pray this in Christ's name. Amen.